Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom. As you know, we've been in a continuing series on uh, Sefer Mishlei on the book of Proverbs. Uh, last week, a lot of people missing because of spring break. Uh, we did a, did a series. We did a, a, a teaching on lashan hara on, on gossip. I encourage you, if you haven't, didn't hear that one, to get it when it comes up on our YouTube channel. Hopefully, uh, this week. Uh, today, we're going to look uh, at the theme of pride uh, and arrogance uh, and a haughty spirit. So we're going to put on the overhead a bunch of different scriptures from throughout the book of Proverbs, chapters 11, 12, 13, 15, 16, 21, 28. Uh, and, and we're just gathering together a number of different verses on the same theme of pride. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. When whoever derides his neighbor has no sense, but the one who has understanding holds his tongue. Where there's strife, there's pride. But wisdom is found in those who take advice. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but he sets the widow's boundary marker in place. Wisdom's instruction is this, to fear the Lord. And humility comes before honor. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit uh, and among the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the unplowed field of the wicked, produce sin. Those who trust in themselves are fools, but those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. Uh, on the overhead, uh, these proverbs uh, drive home the point that if you think you're wise, then you're a fool. But if you're aware of all your foolishness, then you're on your way to becoming wise. So look at Proverbs sixteen nineteen. Better to be lowly in spirit and among the poor than to share plunder with the proud. You know what that's saying? It's saying humility is more valuable than all the gold and silver on the earth. So these verses are all about pride and, and its opposite, humility. And on the overhead, we're going to learn three things today from these passages. Number one, the diagnosis of pride, or what it is. Uh, number two, the destructiveness of pride, what it does. And three, the antidote, how to cure our pride. So first, the diagnosis of pride, what it is. Uh, the book of Proverbs tells us on the overhead three things about pride. Now, first of all, it says pride is needing to feel better than other people in some way. So, for example, look at Proverbs 11, uh, verse uh, 12. A man who lacks judgment derides his neighbor. Pride makes us look down on other people, uh, disdain, uh, feel contempt, feel we're better than them. Uh, We deride our neighbor. We're We're always comparing ourselves to other people. And this understanding is key to diagnosing pride. Uh, In C.S. Lewis's famous book, Mere Christianity, uh, he writes this about pride on the overhead. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Pride only takes pleasure in having more of it uh, than the next person. Proud people aren't really proud of of being successful or intelligent or good-looking. Rather, they're proud of having more success, uh, more intelligence, and better looks than the people around them. Uh, It's the comparison that makes us proud. 
It's the pleasure of being above the rest. Therefore, lust may drive a man to sleep with a beautiful woman, but pride also drives a man to sleep with a beautiful woman as well, but just to prove he can do it and do it over the others. So here's another less racy example. Uh, uh, back in the day when I was in high school, back in the dark ages, <laughs> the guidance counselors are always pushing us to get involved uh, in many after, as many after-school clubs and activities as, as we could. Uh, the chess club, the photography club, the deb- debate club, Latin club, rugby club. And then you'd object and you'd say, uh, I don't like these things. I have no interest in these. But they, don't, they, they always say, but it'll look good on your college application. <laughs> So lots of students ended up spending lots of time doing things they really didn't even like just as a way of accruing a resume. Now, that may not be so bad to get into college, but what if that's the master narrative of your whole life? What if everything you're doing, or you're not doing because you like it, but in order to make a case, uh, to amass a resume, in order to, to prove to yourself and to prove to others that you count? that you're a person of consequence. Arthur Miller, in his play After the Fall, has has a powerful passage where at one point the main character says this, and it's on the overhead. He says, For years I looked at life like a case at law, uh, a series of arguments. Uh, When you're young, you prove how smart you are. Uh, Then what a good lover. Uh, uh, Later, what a good husband or father. And finally, how wise or powerful you are. But underlying it all, Uh, I now see uh, there was an assumption that a person moves on a path toward, I don't know what, uh, toward being justified or condemned, some type of verdict. My disaster happened when I looked up one day and discovered the bench was empty. No God. No judge in sight. And all that remained now was this endless argument with myself. The litigation of existence. Before before an empty bench, which is another way of saying despair. Now, what's so powerful about this is here you have this playwright, Arthur Miller, who says he doesn't believe in God anymore. But it doesn't matter whether you you believe in God or not. It doesn't matter whether you use that particular term. He's saying every human being inexorably, uh, unavoidably, is out there trying to earn his or her own salvation. We're all unsatisfied enough, uh, incomplete uh, in various ways, that in response, we're all out there trying to amass a resume. We're we're in a courtroom. Uh, We're constantly arguing the endless litigation. Whether you believe in God or not, whether you believe in salvation or not, uh, you're out there trying to earn your salvation. There's this endless litigation, endless arguments, and the spinning, uh, uh, and the accruing of evidence for or against, for what? Uh, a verdict. And what's the verdict that we want? That I'm a person who counts. I'm a person of consequence. I'm okay. I'm a person of worth. Every human being desperately needs to prove that to themselves and to others. And therefore, we're all in court. We're all arguing endless litigation whether we believe in God or not. If you're a religious person, you're doing it before God. If you're not a religious person, you're still doing it. You have to do it. That's what Arthur Miller is saying here. And the easiest way to do this is to find someone else that you are better than. And to remind yourself 
and to remind them of that fact. That's the way to do it. Uh, and it's so easy because we're doing it to each other all the time anyway. So, so over here, for example, is a crowd of people, and we tell ourselves, well, we're hipper than them, and we're cooler, and we're more savvy, and we're more sophisticated. And that's easy because this other group over there is saying, I hate those savvy, postured, stylized, ironic, sophisticated people. <laughs> uh, we're hardworking people. You know, we're, we're sensible. We're down to earth. We're not cynical. We're more moral. We're more religious than, than that group. And the other group boasts, we're more open-minded uh, and progressive and, and modern and woke and sophisticated and politically correct. We're not religious, and we're proud of not being religious. <laughs> so no matter which side you're on, conservative, liberal, atheist, Jew, Christian, messianic, it doesn't matter. Because we all have this carnal, fleshly need to feel we're better than the other. So, uh, better than other people. Uh, So we're all out there spinning, we're out there arguing, this endless litigation, this endless trial, this endless accumulation of evidence that I count. Endlessly trying to prove ourselves. Now, that's the first thing that pride is. Uh, this needing to feel that we're better than others. Why do we do it? Why do we, we need to do it? Uh, this brings us to the second aspect of pride on the overhead. So pride is, number one, needing to feel we're better on the overhead, that we're better than, than other people. Secondly, second thing the Bible says about pride is that pride needs to take God's place in your life. Yes. The proud heart wants to take, take God's place in your own life. Now, there are several Hebrew words used in the book of Proverbs for pride. Uh, Proverbs 20, 15, 25, and 16, 19. The word for pride is uh, ge'im. And it's often applied, this word is often applied to God. Uh, and when applied to God, it means supreme majesty. So to use it for a human being uh, is ironic, uh, but also very telling. Uh, the Bible says every single human heart wants to be its own supreme being. We all want to be our own gods. We all want to be our own saviors and lords. We want to call the shots. We want to run our own lives. Uh, we want to decide what's right or wrong for us. We want to earn our own self-worth. Uh, we want to find meaning in life on our own. We don't want to center our lives on the Lord. And that is what creates this exhausting, endless litigation and scrambling for recognition and acclaim. On the overhead, uh, Lewis Smedes, this theologian, writes this. Pride in the spiritual sense is refusing to let God be God. It's to grab God's status for our own self. It's, it's turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his garden. And wishing instead to become the creator. Independent, not reliant on others, but only to your own resources. And that is the greatest delusion, he writes. Uh, This delusional fantasy of all fantasies. uh, This cosmic put on. And again, this is what leads to the endless litigation. The sense of being on this eternal trial. Why? Well, Smith continues on the overhead. He continues and says this. The fantasy that we can make it, as our, uh, make it uh, as our own gods, leaves us empty at the center. We're therefore attacked by demons of fear and anxiety all the time. We learn to swagger. We learn to bluff. 
But deep down inside, we're afraid we cannot make it on our own. And therefore, we look around for people to use as buttresses for our own shaky ego that our pride has created. We look for those people. Uh, And now every new situation calls forth the question, what can I get out of this situation to support the need of my ego for power uh, and for applause? And every new person elicits the question, how can this person contribute to my need to prove that I'm better than others? Life becomes a constant battle to use people to bolster your own self and to avoid letting others use you in the same way that you're using them. All because we're empty at the center. So in the overhead, pride is one, needing to feel better than others in some way. Two, needing to be your own supreme being. And now number three, the proud self is constantly aware of itself. It's preoccupied with self. That's the nature of pride, to be desperately self-aware. To be always thinking, well, how am I looking? Uh, How am I doing? Uh, How am I performing? How am I being treated? Look at Proverbs 13, uh, 10. Wisdom is found in those who take advice, but pride only breeds quarrels. When you give someone advice, you're talking just about a particular thing in question. Uh, For example, I think you put the nail up too high uh, for the picture. You, You should lower it. Now, all you're doing is what? You're talking about the placement of the, of the nail. So you're just talking about the nail, the wall, the picture. But that's not how a proud person sees it. Because everything is about them. The proud person says, don't tell me how to hang a picture. <laughs> I know where to put the nail. It's all about them. On the overhead, for the proud person, the self is always calling attention to itself. The ego. How you look, how you're doing, how you're performing, how you're being treated. That's always the focus of the proud. Here's an, here's, an, here's an illustration. Your body parts don't call attention to themselves unless there's something wrong with them. So, for example, I come home from work. Elizabeth says, uh, how was your day? Uh, I never say, oh, my elbows worked wonderfully today. <laughs> Every time I reach for something, my elbow bends. It's just amazing. <laughs> No, normally no one ever says that, right? (laughs) If your elbows are working fine, you don't think about them. You don't comment on them. Your elbows don't call attention to themselves if there's nothing wrong with them. You only mention your elbow if there happened to be something wrong with it. But the ego calls attention to itself every hour. You can't get through the day without thinking about, am I being snubbed? Uh, Am I being ignored? Uh, Did I get the recognition that I deserve? Did someone commit a microaggression against me (laughs) or hurt my feelings? And by the way, your fragile little feelings are just fine. It's your ego that's being hurt and offended. Think about it. (laughs) Or maybe you're just getting down on yourself. Uh, What does it all really mean? It means there's really something wrong with our identity, Uh, uh, with with the basis of our sense of self. There's something really wrong with our self-centered self-preoccupation. Now, these are all the classic symptoms of pride. Because a proud self is always aware of itself. Uh, And ironically, what we call low self-esteem is actually also a form of pride. Because you know what low self-esteem is? You're still overly concentrating on yourself. You're still fixated on thinking about yourself. You feel like you're a failure. You feel bad. You're down on yourself. 
But notice, you're still thinking all about you. It might be negative feelings, but notice, it's all about me. You're just, you're just as absorbed, just as desperately self-aware, just as self-absorbed uh, as the arrogant person with the superiority complex. And do you know why? Because in your mind, you're still on trial. You're still in the courtroom. Everything that happens is seen as evidence either for or against you. You're still spinning. You're still arguing. You're still in this endless litigation. The only difference between you with your low self-esteem and the person with a superiority complex is that you think you're losing the trial. You're losing the case. There's too much evidence against you. But you wouldn't be so down on yourself. You wouldn't be telling people, oh, I'm a nothing. You wouldn't be so afraid of failure. You wouldn't be saying, I'm no good, unless you were just as self-absorbed as the person that we normally call proud. It's the same system. You're in the same courtroom. So on the overhead, number one, pride is needing to feel better than others. Two, needing to be your own supreme being. Number three, being morbidly self-conscious and self-aware. Now, again, on the overhead. So that's number one. That's what pride is. Um, Yes, thank you. The diagnosis of pride. Let's now turn to number two, the destructiveness of pride, what it does. Look at Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, notice it doesn't say that pride might lead to destruction. No, the connection is direct. In essence, it says there's this parade going on, and after pride, destruction is coming. Here comes pride, destruction's on its way. Pride leads to destruction. Haughtiness, or hubris, leads to fall, to a fall. Now, why is pride so destructive? Two reasons, both a practical reason and a cosmic reason. The practical reason is this. Look at Proverbs 13.10. Pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. A proud person does not learn from their mistakes. A proud person does not learn from criticism. Proverbs 21.4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked is sin. What this is saying is this. In ancient times, at night, you could only see by the light of of a lamp. Uh, If your lamp is yellow... Everything would look yellow. If your lamp is red or the flame is red, everything looks red. And what this is saying is that pride colors and distorts everything you see. So you can't admit that what you, you've done something wrong. You can't admit your own weakness. Everything has to be blamed on somebody else. You've got to maintain the, this image of yourself as a good person. Uh, I'm an okay person. I'm a savvy person. I'm a competent person who, by the way, is better than others. Pride will distort your view of reality. And therefore, you're going to make terrible decisions. That's why it says in Proverbs 28, 26, he who trusts in himself is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom is kept safe. So there's all kinds of practical reasons why pride keeps you out of touch with reality and therefore leads to destruction. But there's also a much deeper and scarier reason why pride leads to destruction, this cosmic reason. Look at Proverbs fifteen twenty five: The Lord tears down the proud man's house, but keeps the widow's boundary intact. And then Proverbs sixteen nineteen: Better to be lowly in spirit and among the poor than to share plunder with the proud. 
These are just two of many examples of this key theme throughout the whole Bible. God loves the widow. God loves the poor. God loves the outsider. God loves the weak. God loves people who've lost in this world. The losers in the struggle for position and power. God loves them. He's for the widow. He's for the fatherless. He's for the poor. He's for the weak. Why? The Bible says God exists forever in this triunity of persons. From all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been loving and honoring each other. In John seventeen twenty four, the, fa- the Son says to the Father, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. The inner life of the triune Godhead was a divine dance of love. Yeshua is saying that Father, Son, and Spirit, from all eternity, each person gives glory to the other two. Each person adores the other two. Each person loves and delights in the other two. There's a dance of love going on from all eternity. Each person within the Godhead centers on the others. Each person gives glory. Gives glory doesn't take glory. Gives delight. Gives love on the, other, on the overhead. In other words, at the very heart of the universe... At the very origin of the universe, in God, there's an other orientation. At the very heart of God is self-giving love. And therefore, if you're in the business of trying to get glory instead of, of giving it, of scrambling for it, of trying to obtain recognition, of always struggling for recognition and acclaim, then you're on a collision course with the very fabric of the universe, the very fabric and being of God himself. Because God loves the lowly. God loves the humble. Look at Isaiah 57, 15. I am God and I live in a high and lofty place and also with him who is of a a humble and contrite spirit. But the proud I only know from afar. So if you're walking in pride and self-centeredness, it's not only you're on a collision course with God himself, You're on a collision course with God's future for this universe, his future plan. Because the Bible says one day God is going to lift up the humble and put down the proud. He's going to lift up the weak and put down the strong. And if your whole goal in life is to get glory and acclaim and recognition and to prove how how great you are to yourself and to prove you're a person of worth and confidence and consequence, if that's your goal, you're on a collision course with who God is and for his, and his plan for the universe. Pride leads to destruction. And now you know why. Now the overhead. So number one, that's what pride is. Number two, that's how destructive it is. And then three, what's the antidote? What are we going to do about it? Look at Proverbs 15.33. Yeratashamayim, the fear of the Lord, teaches a man wisdom. And humility comes before honor. Now there's two parts to this proverb, two principles here uh, on the overhead. Uh, the first is you've, you, you, uh, you've, got, you've got to uh, get the glory that only comes from being humble. And second, you've got to use the joy of the gospel to erode your pride for the rest of your life. 
So let's start with the second half of the verse. Humility comes before honor. There's an honor that only comes to the humble. The word for honor here is the Hebrew word kavod, which also means glory. It's the same word used for, for the glory of God. Uh, God's glory is what makes him not only important, well, but solid. It's, it's literally in Hebrew, it's his weightiness, you know, the substance of God. Uh, so this verse, this verse is saying something astounding. Because the humble don't think they're important, right? The humble aren't people who, who are after importance. But here's what it's saying. Only if you're not after importance can you get a glory that never fades. Only the people who are sure they're not important can matter forever. There's a glory that's being spoken of here that's only available to the humble. Which means there's a glory, a substance, a significance that is not attained by your efforts. It's not argued for. It's not merited. It's not earned. It must be a gift. Now, what we're on to, with this a glory that only comes from being humble, isn't just this practical principle for living, which it, but it, it, which it is, but we're also on to the very principle of the universe. At this point, we're seeing what the Lord is after in all of human history. Go back to the beginning of history, uh, the history of the world. Look at Genesis. Uh, one of the things you'll see is this. In all ancient cultures, the oldest son always gets the power. And yet in the Bible... In practically every generation, God turns the tables upside down and works with the younger son, right? So, so God chooses Abel, not Cain. He chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. He chooses Jacob over Esau, uh, Judah over Reuben, uh, Perez over Zerah, uh, Moses over Aaron, David over, over his older brothers. Over and over again, God does this deliberately, the Lord completely turns upside down the world's understanding of greatness and power. And all ancient and modern cultures, also beautiful women, got the powerful men. And then at every place, God works with Sarah over Hagar. He works with Leah over Rachel. He works with Tamar, who played the harlot. He works with Rahab, the prostitute. He works with Hannah, the barren woman. Uh, Ruth, the Moabitess. Bathsheba, the adulteress. God works with the barren woman. The unwanted woman, the girl nobody wanted, uh, the boy everybody forgot about. Now, why does God do that? When the Lord, who has self-giving love at the very heart of who he is, when he came into this world, he chose to come into this world as a poor man. He was born in a manger, an animal feed trough. He didn't come to the Roman Colosseum or, or the uh, Athenian Acropolis or, or Caesar's Palace. He was born in an animal feed trough in an unimportant backwater colony of the Roman Empire. His parents were so poor they had to offer two birds for Yeshua's dedication, which was the lowest of all the sacrifices. Yeshua himself was homeless most of his life. That's the God who's the real God. He does the Things completely differently than the way the world expects. So you show he's born into a poor family. He goes to basically a poor homeless person. Owning only the clothes on his back is all he owns. And in the end, he's betrayed uh, or denied uh, or deserted by all his followers. And dies an ignominious death. 
Now, is that the way to win the world? What if someone today said, I have a goal that 2,000 years from now, I want to be the most influential and the most famous person who ever lived. I'd like a third to a half of all the world to worship me <laughs> and build their whole life around me. I'd like multiple civilizations completely built on my teaching. Now, if that was your goal, how would you try to accomplish that? Well, would you do it the way Yeshua did it? Not in your life. There's no way. Would you choose to be born in obscurity? Would you purposely avoid getting involved in any of the powerful religious or or political or economic or academic or, or military networks? Would you be killed tragically at the young age of 33? Would you think that was the way to become the most influential and powerful and life-changing person in the history of the world? No. But that's how Yeshua did it. Yeshua makes foolish the wisdom of this world. Because what if he tried to do it the way we would have done it? What if he had come as a great philosopher uh, with a great philosophical system? Well, the only person that would really get it then would be the, the intellectually strong. What if he came in strength, he lived this great life? He says, now live just like me uh, and you'll be blessed. Then only the morally strong would have been able to follow him. But right now, in Southeast Asia, in China, in South Korea, in Africa, in Latin America, in South America, Yeshua faith is sweeping the globe. It's kindling the hearts of the downtrodden and the disenfranchised and the poor and the oppressed. You might not see it quite as much here in, in, in Western, the West, in, in Western Europe and North America, but around the world it's sweeping through these places and it's growing at five to ten times the rate of the population. Do you see poor people across the world starting Plato or Aristotle studies? <laughs> no. <laughs> but they're studying the message of Yeshua. And their lives are being changed and healed. And the families are being put back together again. And they're getting hope. Why? On the overhead. Because Yeshua brought a salvation that was received, not achieved. And it was received through humility. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Malkut HaShemayim, the kingdom of heaven. Yeshua didn't say, I'm strong. I've come to live a strong life as your example. Uh, now, now suck it up with all your strength and be like me. No. Yeshua came and lived the life that you were too weak to live. And he died the death that you were unwilling to admit that you deserved to die. And he paid the price that you could never pay. He came to take your punishment, to be your substitute. He came to do it all for you, to offer eternal life with him, if you would but repent and trust in him and surrender your life to him, to his lordship. That's the gospel. That's the Jewish gospel. Now, by the way, speaking of the Jewish gospel, on the overhead here, biblical Judaism was based on three pillars. Torah, priesthood, and temple. Rabbinic Judaism did away with all three of these. Rabbinic Judaism, they substituted the oral law for the Torah, the rabbis for the priesthood, and the yeshiva, the study house, for the temple. 
But Yeshua came to fulfill biblical Judaism. He is the living word of God who writes the Torah on your heart. He is the ultimate great high priest and the fulfillment of all the temple sacrificial system, filling you with his spirit. So you become a true living temple with whom the Lord himself dwells. Yeshua gives you a glory that can only be received through humility. He himself came in weakness. That's why the gospel is is the hope of the world, the whole world. It's not just for the intellectually strong or or the morally strong. It's for everyone. The message of the gospel is that it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. You can be the worst sinner in the world. But Yeshua is calling you now, today, to repent. And he holds out this free offer of hope and life and rebirth for you. If you will just do these three simple things, if you will turn from your sin and turn from yourself and turn to him and cry out, Lord, accept me into your kingdom, not because of anything good I've done, but because of what you have done, Yeshua, on my behalf as my great high priest, as my once and for all sacrifice. And if you sincerely do this, denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him, following Yeshua, the Messiah, then you finally have moved out of religion and into the gospel. Religion is you give God a moral record and then God owes you blessing. But the gospel is the opposite. The gospel is God gives you a perfect record in Yeshua. And then you live for him. So a test of whether or not you are born again is simply this. Are you living for Yeshua? And when you say, Lord, I repent, I turn my life over to you, accept me for what Yeshua has done on my behalf, when you truly commit to him, at that moment, the Lord looks at you and values you above all the gold and silver on earth. Now, how do you get that kind of glory, that kind of unconditional glory and regard that's not based on your performance, that's not based on religious ritual? We need to know, by the way, there are some gifts that are insulting, <laughs> and you only get them if you accept the insult. So, for example, someone gives you a Hanukkah gift, and you unwrap it, you open it up, and guess what? It's a bottle of mouthwash. <laughs> if you accept the gift, if you say, thank you, uh, you're acknowledging, yes, I must have bad breath. <laughs> There's no way to receive some gifts without admitting something bad about yourself. And it's the same thing with the gift of the gospel. You have to be humble to receive the gospel. Because the gospel is, you are so sinful and so prone to evil and so flawed that nothing less than the death of the Son of God on the cross could save you. And to we modern Western men, that message is primitive. It's over the top. It's insulting. It only shows that if that's your reaction, you don't yet have the humility to receive this gift. On the overhead. Our salvation was achieved by Yeshua through humility. He humbling himself. Even to death on the cross, it can only be received by humility. But you humbling yourself, repenting, and accepting the gift of the gospel, making Yeshua Lord of your life. To receive the gospel, you first have to admit that you need it. The gospel would change your life if you surrender to it. 
That's why it mostly impacts the poor and the oppressed because they most often have the humility to admit their need. But we here in the first world, we sophisticated Westerners, we've got a lot more trouble with the gospel because it takes humility to receive this gift. And we're often too proud and too offended to admit our sin and our desperate need for God's grace. But it takes humility to get the glory, the glory offered only by the gospel. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. The problem is most of us don't have it. You don't have eternal life in Messiah's kingdom if you're offended by this gift, which doesn't just say you have bad breath, (laughs) but says you are a moral failure when compared to God's standards. And they can only be saved by the blood of Yeshua. So the first thing you need is this humility, this poise. The gospel is so unique because the gospel says at the same time, you're more lost than you ever dared believe. And also, you're more absolutely loved and accepted in Yeshua than you'd ever dare hope. At the same time, that's what gives you this balance, uh, this poise that nothing else can. So first, you've got to, to get the glory that only the humble can get. But a lot of you are now are saying, well, David, I believe all this. But every day, if I'm honest, I still go out into the world and I get sucked back into the courtroom. And I find myself doing it again, submitting, succumbing to my pride, arguing, gathering evidence, spinning, criticizing others, being devastated by criticism, needing to look down on other people. I'm still trying to convince myself and convince others that I'm a person of consequence, that I'm a person that counts. And so I find myself stuck back in this courtroom. What can I do? Proverbs 15, 33. The fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom. The fear of the Lord includes, yes, a holy fear. Fear of sinning against our God. Fear of punishment. Fear of displeasing him. Fear of losing fellowship with him. But it also includes awe and wonder and worship and joy for God's grace. Now, notice this verse doesn't say the fear of the Lord gives you wisdom, but that it teaches you wisdom. And part of this wisdom is that it teaches you humility. It teaches you humility. Here's how it works. When you get out into the world, you almost automatically go back uh, into this courtroom mode where you think think the performance leads to verdict. If you do good, you feel you are good. And if you do no good, you feel you're no good. Because performance leads to verdict. We connect everything we do to our self-image. But look at 1 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 3, where Rav Shaul says, Paul says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or, or any human court. I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't justify me. It's God who judges me. Do you see what Paul's saying? He says, I don't care whether I'm judged by you or any human court. Now, by the way, he's talking to the congregation at Corinth, the Corinthians. They're not a court. But Paul is using the same metaphor Arthur Miller used in his play after the fall. Paul realizes that every day under normal circumstances, our hearts act like we're on trial. We're in a courtroom. We're arguing. We're trying to make a case. We're trying to prove our worth. But Paul says, 
I've got another courtroom. Totally. First he says, I don't care what you, what you think about me. And then in a lot of we moderns, we say, yeah, that's right. You should only care about what you think about yourself. But that wouldn't have gotten, gotten him out of the courtroom. He'd still be in this endless litigation with himself, trying to see if he measured up to his own standards, which is just as exhausting uh, and guilt-ridden as trying to live, live up to someone else's standards. But look at what Paul says. It's, it's radical. He says, not only don't I care what you think about me, I don't even care what I think about me. <laughs> I've stopped connecting my performance to my self-image. I've gotten out of the game. The courtroom is over. I'm out of court. If I do well today, that doesn't puff me up. Because I don't connect that to my self-image. If I do poorly today, I'm not devastated. Because I don't connect that to my self-image. My, my self-image and my self-regard is based on something entirely else. Something other. Performance doesn't lead to verdict. Why? Because Paul says it's God who justifies me. He's telling us that Yeshua faith turns upside down the normal way the human heart works. Because if you're in Yeshua, the verdict is in. The verdict is in. God already accepts you. God already loves you. If you're in Yeshua, if you are a Yeshua follower, uh, the verdict is in. And it's not performance that leads to verdict. Your salvation is not based on how well you perform. No, it's the opposite. Verdict now leads to performance. If you've truly been reborn from above, with God's spirit not residing within you, it radically changes how you live. And you will now live and walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. The verdict is in, and that is what changes your performance. Now you go out and you help people in the name of Yeshua. Not because you need to feel good about yourself, but because you're walking in and you're living out this new creation heart that you have. The verdict is in and it changes how you live. And that's possible only because the gospel takes you out of the courtroom. And the gospel takes you out of the courtroom because Yeshua went into the courtroom. Yeshua went on trial. And the judge and the jury began beating him before the trial was even over. He didn't have a chance. (laughs) Why did he do it? Look at the overhead. Yeshua went in and got the verdict that we deserved so that we can get the verdict that he deserves so that we can get out of the courtroom because Yeshua went into the courtroom on our behalf. And you need to meditate on this daily. The fear of the Lord will teach it to you. You need to revive yourself with the gospel whenever you're feeling down or dejected or, de- or, or depressed or you're feeling prideful or, or resentful or critical of others or jealous or tempted or indifferent or, or, or tested or full of doubts or anxiety or full of the cares of this world or drawn away by the lusts of your flesh. Revive yourself with this gospel. Remind yourself, the court is adjourned in Yeshua. The verdict is in. So cease your striving. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. The music team to come on up. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. 
Thank you for showing us, Lord, today the importance of humility. Help us to see our own pride, Lord. Help us to humble ourselves. Lord, today we repent. We repent of comparing ourselves to others, of needing to think we're, we're better than them, of needing to think uh, and needing others to think how great I am. We repent of this lie that we can be our own saviors and lords and be in total control of our own life. Lord, we repent from this unhealthy focus on ourselves, of thinking about ourselves way too much and obsessing how, how, over how others perceive us. Lord, help me to stop being preoccupied with, with how I'm looking, how I'm doing, how I'm performing, how I'm being treated. Help me to set aside my ego and to stop being so easily offended. Help me to see it's not all about me. Because you tell us, Lord, pride goes before destruction. It distorts my view of reality uh, and goes against the very fabric of your universe, Lord, which is other-oriented and built on humility and self-giving and self-sacrificial love. So, Lord Yeshua, teach me today the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Show me the, the road to honor begins with humility. Because, Lord, you tell us the last will be first and the first will be last. You, Lord Yeshua, you tell us, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who are humble, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Because your favor, Lord Yeshua, is, is received. It's not achieved. It's received by your grace when we turn from our sin and turn from ourself and turn to you. And so we do this now. And we pray this all in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.